This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith. Today, my co-host Caleb Castro and I continue our conversation from last week's episode. We continue to talk about the covenant of grace and specifically the Mosaic Covenant. Let's dive in. Bobcast. An issue closely attached to this issue of republication is another issue, and it's an important issue in Reformed theology and Reformation theology, which is the issue of distinguishing law from gospel. A lot of the republication thesis and those who are advocates of it are concerned with properly dividing, properly distinguishing the law from the gospel. This is an important matter. I think it would help at this point to take a look at the law-gospel distinction, this issue of law and gospel, in light of what we've talked about so far with the Mosaic Covenant and this republication thesis. We've been talking about Galatians, and we've been talking about this Judaizing heresy, this problem as it pertains to a righteousness that comes by keeping the law. So what is this distinction between law and gospel, and where does it come from, and how do we properly understand it? One thing in this is that in this question of law and gospel, again, when the republication proponents say law slash gospel, we have to ask, well then, if you're saying in some sense with the mosaic economy that there is uh, this works principle, then we should also be asking in what sense might a works principle be continuing in uh, the New Covenant? In what sense are we talking about the law? There's an actual tension between law and gospel to the extent that the two do not associate. Now, this can be a sticky subject because an actual intermingling of law and gospel does produce a grace plus works system. But is there a distinction, though, in talking about simply the law and gospel as opposing principles and the law and gospel in terms of opposites in their functions is the distinction in how they actually work and function and what they're for, or are they truly opposed to one another? Another way to ask this question is then, yes, what is the relationship between grace and law? And that, that's a bit of a different question then, I believe, also than a distinction between law and gospel. Is there any grace whatsoever occurring in law, or does the law only have negative uses or negative aspects? Likewise, when we talk about grace, is there anything negative in grace? Or perhaps we could even say, is there anything negative in the gospel, a negative aspect to it? With the law, for instance, is the giving of the law, the proclamation of the law, the, the, the revelation of the Decalogue even, in any way for the benefit of God's people and for those who actually obey it? And as far as the gospel, when the gospel goes out, the proclamation and message and works of Jesus Christ, when that goes forth, it is a positive thing, but for those who refuse to hear it, is it a negative, condemnatory thing? 
Does it have a condemnatory effect in that manner? Are these things then a mixing of the law and gospel, or can we say there are legitimate distinctions, but also some form of relationship in terms of they both have the same origin from the holy God? For that matter, as we're talking about law and gospel, what is the role of the law in the life of the Christian post-conversion in their salvation, in their sanctification? These are the questions that come up when we talk about law and gospel, and it can be a controversial issue. So, for a little historical background, the law and gospel is often actually associated with Martin Luther. It was an idea that he had a lot of interest in and did a lot of work on. But it is also an issue that was taken up and discussed and affirmed almost across the board that there is law and gospel and a relationship between them by Reformed theology. Now, there's some variations and differences between the Lutherans and between the Reformed on what exactly that relationship is, but law and gospel is an issue of Reformation theology. So, so you could say in short that Martin Luther had a dream. <sighs> but what if I don't want to say that? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Uh, so, wow, that's <laughs> just that's just killer. <laughs> now, a lot of people, even in our day, they make much of the law gospel distinction and can treat the distinction between law and gospel. This is perhaps a little reductionistic, but basically law is bad and gospel is good. So. Law, in this view, is approached almost exclusively in the first use of the law, which I think we've talked about these three uses before, but just quick reminder, three uses of the law. The first use is the law to show us our need for Christ, our need for salvation, to show us our sin. The second and third use can be interchanged, but typically they're ordered that the second use is the law for the general righteousness and suppression of wickedness in the world. And then the third use is the law as normative in the life of the Christian. Well, some will press the law-gospel distinction so far to where it gets into the antinomian view of Galatians and other texts I mentioned before, where basically the law only functions to bring us to Christ, and then once we're in Christ... We don't have to worry about it anymore. This is a position of certain radical Lutheran theologians and certain ostensibly claiming to be Reformed theologians. They push this law gospel principle to that length. But that's not really the typical Reformed approach to these matters. I did mention those three uses of the law, and we affirm all of them. And just as an example of a heavyweight of Reformed theology, talking about law and gospel in a more nuanced way, Zacharias Ursinus was the co-author with Caspar Livianus of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is, of course, one of our three forms of unity in the United Reformed Churches, and it's one of the most famous and well-known and well-loved confessional statements of Reformed theology. 
So dealing with question two of the Heidelberg Catechism and his commentary on it, Zacharias Ursinus talks about law and gospel. So just for a reminder, question two is laying out the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer three, first, how great my sins and miseries are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sin and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So this is where we get the common formulation of guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service, or whatever other alliterative points you want to attach to it. I bring this up when we're talking about law and gospel because Ursinus says this in his commentary dealing with question two. He says, this question contains the statement and division of the whole catechism and at the same time accords with the division of the scriptures into the law and gospel and with the differences of these parts as they've already been explained. Ursinus doesn't reduce this to law bad or law as first use only and then gospel good because note that we're talking about three things. We're talking about our sin and misery we're talking about our salvation in Christ, but then we're talking about, in the third part of the catechism, our duty, our responsibility as Christians towards God's law and to uphold it in its third use. And actually, Ursinus says later in that same question of his commentary, as one of the purposes of this gratitude, he says, secondly, that we may return such gratitude as is acceptable to God, who will not have us to be grateful under any other form than that which he has prescribed in his word. True gratitude is therefore not to be rendered according to our own notion, but to be learned from the word of God. And so this is why Reformed theology has held a high view of the law in its third use. It's why if you read either the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, they have lengthy and extensive expositions of the Ten Commandments and how they apply in the life of the Christian. So in other words, with that, whereas we might say if we're to uh, maybe generalize it a bit, a distinctive of Lutheran theology is its focus and emphasis on justification, which is a great thing. Reformed theology, however, also looks further at the work of the Spirit then on the flip side of now that one is justified, how then should they live? So in other words, Reformed theology's large strength is then in sanctification, in looking at how now the law may be used positively for the Christian life. So with all this, also as a side note, um, Zach, uh, Zacharias uh, Ursinus is a funny name. Yes, it is. And we remember that Ursinus is Latin because everyone Latinized their names back then, which is a trend we should definitely be bringing back. Sure, why not? <laughs> Ursinus means bear. Now, I propose that we refer to him from now on as Zachy Bear or Zach the Bear. Motion denied. Very good. So... <laughs> With that said, so everything that you're saying here, Andrew, is basically, if we're to think of it in this way, from what you are quoting from Ursinus, who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, Zachy Bear, uh, Zacharias Ursinus, was a student of Philip Melanchthon, who was a student of Martin Luther and Martin Luther's close friend and successor in the Reformation. Zacharias Ursinus, however, through his studies, his own studies, was taking on what would be distinctly a Reformed 
understanding of scripture and its application. So when he's writing this, he's coming from already the standpoint of, yes, having considered the Lutheran perspective, but now also the Reformed perspective in noting this huge difference of how the law is not only negative, but positive. First of all, these three uses then are not a entirely condemnatory thing, not just bad. For example, when you're talking about that first use, that the law is a pedagogue, a a tutor, a, a guardian. It points out our sins, but at the same time, it's pointing us to someone greater, Jesus Christ. And in that second use, it is not merely restraining sin and curbing wickedness. It's also then promoting justice. And in its third use, it's informing us and urging us, encouraging us even, to walk in what is pleasing to God and to delight in those things. So the real negative side of the law, if you want to call it quote-unquote bad side of the law, isn't a defect in the law. It is the corruption of man, specifically that fallen man cannot keep it. And for that reason, we stand under it condemned. In Christ, however, the law is fulfilled for us that we might walk in it and benefit from its three uses by the Spirit at work in us. So all that to say, the law of what it is at Sinai is what it has always been, what it was in the garden, what it was in the old covenant, what it is in Christ, and what it will be eternally. The law is the expression of God's own holiness. And as such, the law is holy, righteous, and good, which even Romans 7.12 says, the law is holy. The commandment then is holy and just and good. Or as Paul says elsewhere, the same Paul who says the law is not of faith in Galatians. In Romans 3.31, he puts it as a question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Basically, does faith cancel out? Does it revoke the law? He answers, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So as Christians, there is a way although not depending on the law for our salvation or justification, that has been made very clear, we do uphold the law. The law is good, and we strive after doing what the law, what these Ten Commandments, these two great commandments, tell us. So now, in returning to that question, then, of republication, or rather, we shall say specifically, this reissuing of the law, the reproclamation of it at Sinai, What's actually going on here? What is being distinguished from the promise to Abraham? Well, first, we're saying that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of grace. There are elements which might have externally the appearance of law, but we have to consider that whole economy as being the system of driving people to Christ and of encouraging and strengthening them of their faith in the promise of the one who is to come and fulfill all justice for them, all obligations of the law, all obedience. The Mosaic economy comes from its context after their deliverance from Egypt. It comes in the context of, if you will, even temporal salvation. But what you see already in the preamble of the Decalogue, Exodus 20, verse 1, the Lord who delivered you from the land of slavery... You can also see this in Psalm 136. Uh, In this economy, you have an announcement of what not to do 
you shall not, dot, 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 but also, conversely, implied what is pleasing to God, okay, that you shall have a reverence for life, a dignity for life rather than murder, right, that you would worship and enjoy God and delight in him rather than have other gods and idols and looking to created things. In this economy, in this system, there is a system provided for substitutionary atonement, which you see clearly spelled out in Leviticus 16. All of the, the obligations to maintain the civil and ceremonial laws pointed to the need for salvation by a perfect mediator in once and for all sacrifice. The whole of the administration then was to teach the gospel, even if it was in a shadowy form. All that's to say, what of this isn't a gracious system? Right. I think it's very important, too, in looking at this republication discussion, what you said about the preamble to the Decalogue. So the works principle in the republication system that we talked about earlier is this idea that recapitulating the covenant of works, they would do and they would merit the land. But in the covenant of works with Adam, Adam had to keep that covenant in order to receive the reward. So I guess it exposes some of the inconsistency when looking at the mosaic and saying that, well, they have to do the law to maintain their land tenure, because for Adam, it was do it to get the reward. Here, they keep the reward because they already have the blessing. They already have the land. They're not earning the land. They already have it. And so there's a bit of a disconnect between the covenant of works and then the supposed recapitulation of it in the mosaic better to look at it even in these reform categories of they have been delivered they've been brought out of egypt which is a type of redemption in christ uh, we can even see that argued in the belgic confession when it talks about baptism and it talks about these various stages of the exodus as corresponding to christ's redemptive work for us so we see this deliverance as a type of Christ's work. And then how are they to live in light of this deliverance, which they've already been brought in light of this blessing, which they've already received in this life, which they already have. This raises the question of why is there this interest or focus on postulating, uh, supposing a works principle derived from the pre-fall covenant with Adam, when there is such a radical distinction in this economy through Moses. Specifically, you had said Adam was to obey in order to receive that reward promised to him. In this way, in the covenant of grace, what is significantly different is what is necessary is redemption. There is no aspect of works that is to be considered. From the fall, it should be greatly demonstrated that there can be no consideration of works in our dealings with God, because our works failed even when we were in a state of innocence. What's distinctive here is we are needing to be pointed to grace and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The typological functions in this manner shouldn't be looking backwards, which you pointed out in an earlier episode, uh, Andrew. Right. They, they don't point backwards. They have to point forwards. And, and if, if there's anything that is coming from 
the past from backwards. It is simply that the moral law that has always been in God's holiness that was already at work and written on the heart of Adam is still at play with post-fall man. We have not lost the moral law of God is written on the heart, but it's distorted. The heart is now distorted and corrupt so that we will not rightly interpret it, rightly read it. What's proclaimed at Sinai is not some program of a works principle to retain a land and its blessings, but simply it is a reissuing, a restating of the moral law already written on the heart of man, even though it was suppressed. This is a grace of God to announce over and over and over again to man, this is what is holy. This is what is good. This is what your God is like. This is the way of obedience. That's what is being inscribed. And so he is taking a pen and rewriting it on the heart of the Israelites at the foot of Sinai over and over again. Even then, they do not obey. Simply what we have here in a concept of do this and live is just that. Not a merit system, but our obligation to God as holy creator and to walk in his ways. And I think I already took this up in the previous episode as well, but just by way of reminder. So then when we're looking at the exile, the exile doesn't come because of a failure to be relatively righteous and relatively keep the law in the land. The exile comes because the people reject their God. It comes because they do not have faith. It comes because they are an apostate people. And so they are spat out of the land. They are sent out of the land. And the remnant of the faithful that remains, they undergo a disciplining. They undergo a chastising before they can be brought back into the land. And I think this points us, again, because types need to look forward to these forward-looking realities of Christ and of his people. There are those who visibly are a part of the church, but they will not enter into the rest because they do not truly have faith. They do not have the righteousness of faith. There may be times where the church is chastened and disciplined, where it's small, where it's less visible, where it may even almost seem to disappear from the earth and yet continues as a small seed. And yet, God will deliver his people through that ultimately to glory. In considering how republication is driven by typology, uh, by type and fulfillment. There's a problem in this way for republication and the exile in that, well, first of all, in 2 Kings 22, with the pronouncement of the punishment for uh, Manasseh's sins, you have God saying that he had been storing up wrath for Israel ever since they were delivered from Egypt, that from the get-go, they were already provoking him. And yet God has endured patiently with them. A works principle of uh, temporal blessings for obedience and curses and threats of punishment for disobedience from the very beginning, which I believe you noted a bit earlier, but I want to bring it back in here now. They should have never been able to enter the land. And the moment that they stepped foot into the land, they should have been kicked out. Right. Time and time again, they should have been kicked out. But there's also something that doesn't match up in terms of typology in pointing forward here, where with the exile, the Jews were brought back 
to the land. They didn't merit anything. They were brought back to the land. They didn't have a temporal obedience to earn it. Now, it might be argued that they were able to go back because the land had a time of uh, recovery from its being reaped since it was never given a, a jubilee from being tilled. But in either case, wouldn't this mean that if the works principle is in such a strict operation as the way that republication proponents suggest, wouldn't it also require then obedience to merit the temporal reward of returning to the land? And likewise, in pointing forward, there's the question of what do you do with those who are excommunicated from the church? There is a process of reconciliation to be restored to the church uh, for those who repent. But the proper typological function here from the exile from the land should be eternal condemnation. Because we're going from the temporal to the spiritual in this way. We have a mistype, a, a mismatching of types here. A, a lack of correlation, if you will, between type mm-hmm. and anti-type. So all of this, all that we have done to conclude that our proposal, taken for whatever it's worth as a couple of nobodies that we are, We think that rather than to embrace this republication thesis and this idea of a typological works principle, it's better to go with Bavink, as we've quoted before, and with Calvin and with these others and say that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of grace, an administration of the covenant of grace, and to leave it at that. Because when we start to introduce these other things, we end up introducing more confusion and raising more issues than we solve. It's true. Is that fair? That is fair. So that's probably a good point to stop. That probably is a good point to stop. So with that, we thank you for listening to this Bobcast. We thank you for coming back after we've been away for so long. We appreciate your continued support. Of course, as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to us on social media or email us at bobcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and uh, interact with anything you might send us. Well, and if you have uh, any complaints or frustrations, then uh, send them to Andrew at beep. Or you could send them to Caleb at beep. (laughs) Until then, tote beep. Zines. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.